All right, welcome to The Social Brain. Uh, this is episode 26, The Neuroscience of Empathy. Uh, so we're going to be talking about empathy and theory of mind and a bunch of related topics. And uh, I'm Andrew Cooper Sansone. This is my co-host, Taylor Guthrie. Um, we are The Social Brain. And uh, if you uh, just right at the outset, if you guys get anything out of this episode, make sure to like and subscribe to both of our channels. And um, yeah, also consider signing up for our Patreon. You can scan this QR code uh, at the bottom of the screen or this one up here at the top left or go to patreon.com slash the social brain. And uh, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, soon we will be doing a some kind of merchandise giveaway uh but right now just head over there and see if you uh want to support us you can get a cool sticker like taylor has on his water bottle um we also have merch stores below our videos here so if you want some cool neuroscience merch like stickers or t-shirts or bags uh go check that out we've got some really cool designs but i'm going to hand it over to taylor to get us started on empathy yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we really want to do this kind of free to consumers as much as possible, but we put, we put a lot of work into these episodes and have kind of jobs on the side along with all of this. So anything to kind of help us keep the lights on, keep the bills paid, uh, is, is very appreciated. Um, uh, and, and I mean, speaking of that, we're talking about empathy today, right? Uh, really kind of trying to, to feel what other people are going through. And I think something that really stands out to me that's really amazing about this, this kind of quality that we have is that we have, we have these two brains, my brain, your brain, that are in completely different areas of space, yet somehow they're in some way mirroring each other. Uh, we have evidence from, from brain scans that we have similar patterns of activity across people in these different situations while they're feeling the same emotions, while they're thinking about the same people. Uh, and that in its own is, is incredible, the fact that our brains have devised some kind of a mechanism to, to mirror the thoughts and the emotions of other people. Uh, but what I really want people to, to think about, to really dwell on is the fact that empathy is probably one of the biggest foundations of the success of our species, that we were able to build this incredibly complex social uh, environment, social kind of milieu and all of these, these buildings and crazy societies that we're in uh, because of the fact that we've been able to develop and maintain these social relationships. And so much of that uh, is about connecting with one another. It's about kind of getting on the same wavelength. Uh, it's about kind of feeling what other people are feeling, trying to predict what other people are going to do based on what they're feeling. And so much of that is kind of wrapped into this kind of umbrella term that we're going to talk about that is empathy. And we'll kind of unpack that. We'll talk about what it is and how it unfolds. But a really kind of troubling statistic with a lot of this is that the data is actually showing that empathy is on the decline in our species. Uh, and there could be a lot of reasons for this. Uh, one of the, the things is a lot of the technology technology that's coming out today is, is isolating us. So even though we're surrounded by people all of the time, we're, we're kind of disconnected. We're interacting with with a phone instead of actually reading and feeling emotions of others. Uh, but there's also, I think, that there was so much of a tribal component to empathy that 
it was something that allowed us to get along with the people that were close to us, the people that we relied on, that we were dependent on. Um, I've seen statistics that show that like um, the amount of people that are living alone today is like almost 10 times what it was 30 years ago. Uh, and so there's something that I think is is missing uh, because of that. There's all of this hostility in the world today. And, uh, you know, I mean, you just look at look at Twitter or X, I guess, today uh, and just all of the vitriol that, that gets put out there. And uh, I think that we're definitely in need of a dose of, of really kind of understanding that, that we're all people, that we all have perspectives of our own. We all have feelings right? We all can hurt and suffer. Uh, and so today we're really going to look at how it is that we achieved that kind of in the past, why it might be declining now, uh, and what's really going on in the brain to allow us to, to kind of predict and mimic and mirror kind of the emotions and the thoughts of other people. Yeah. And I think uh, you mentioned it, but there's got to be something to uh, the the amount of time we spend online and in our kind of you know, a lot of us work from home, myself included, and uh, don't always get that uh, human interaction there too. So it's not just that we're living alone; we're also often working on our own, or at least um, in isolation somewhat. Um, and I think, I mean, on that, just real quick, uh, I mean, we'll get into this, but I think a big part of how these systems develop is through experience is through actually interacting with people, seeing other people's emotions and like uh, trying to, to predict and, and interact. Uh, and so I think that's a big piece that we need to dive into. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, so maybe we should just kind of jump in. What are we talking about? What's empathy? What, uh, you know, there's a lot of related terms in this area, empathy, sympathy, compassion. We mentioned theory of mind. Um, but maybe we should just differentiate between those first three, empathy, sympathy, compassion. Um, and so, yeah, do, do you want to take that, take a stab at those definitions? Yeah. And especially, I think, getting between the terms empathy and sympathy, especially for people that are in like helping professions, there's a, there's a big distinction there uh, because sympathy is our ability to kind of recognize that that someone else is in distress, that someone else is sad or upset. And it's like, oh, you're really sad. That that sucks. Right. Uh, and that doesn't go as far as actually trying to, to get down in the hole with someone, like trying to feel what they're feeling and really kind of be on the same page as them. Like that's that's really where you get more to the empathetic side of things. Um, but empathy is also a very blanket term, and we'll get into that in a second. And uh, do you want to maybe take a stab at kind of where compassion comes out of all of this? Yeah. So, I mean, I've always understood compassion as... Um, taking an interest and uh, action on behalf of someone else's suffering. So it's not just the recognition of what they're feeling. It's not just, it's not even just feeling what they're feeling. It's a, it's that next step of kind of doing something about it, maybe even just intending to do something about it, but the, the kind of like behavioral aspect of um, you know, empathic concern, I guess. 
no, I like that a lot. Uh, and that's something that uh, we're not going to dive super deep into uh, in this episode, but we're we're building the foundation for why that's even possible in the first place, because compassion is built on empathy. It's built on us first recognizing that someone is in distress, that someone is suffering, that someone has some kind of feeling that's different than our own. Uh, but then having this willingness and this intent to, to try to alleviate that suffering in some way. Um, and so... I think it's really important that we we kind of unpack the the term empathy and talk about how it's it's really multifaceted and especially as we start to look at the brain stuff we see that there are distinct neural systems for these different components that all get kind of wrapped up into the term empathy when we talk about it uh do you want to briefly just kind of talk about what those those three are yeah so i've i've the the first um first one which we can is usually called or we're going to call it uh, action empathy is one I hadn't really heard much about before doing research on this episode. Uh, and this one is kind of about um, sort of empathizing with the actions of others, like the actual motor movements of other people, um, being able to understand, uh, you know, not just seeing what they're doing, but understanding sort of how th they're doing it. Um, and we'll get into this deeper, but this seems to rely on the mirror neuron system, or at least it has something to do with the mirror neuron system, um, which are, is a system that basically activates both when we ourselves are taking some kind of uh, motor action and when we see other people taking that same motor action. So there's, there's um, this interesting system in the brain that seems to mirror both when we're doing something and when someone else is doing that same thing. And then uh, cognitive empathy and affective empathy are the other two types. These ones were more, um, more familiar to me. Um, cognitive empathy being kind of what we talked about when we were saying sympathy, uh, when we we're talking about sympathy being the recognition of what other people are thinking and feeling, um, specifically feeling but just understanding what they're feeling from kind of from a cognitive perspective, really just, okay, you know, see, recognizing what someone is feeling, um, stop, full stop. And then affective empathy, affect being uh, related to emotions and feelings. Um, this is the, the, the feeling, uh, the actual, um, experience of what someone else is feeling kind of in your own mind, in your own experience. And uh, this seems to rely on something sort of similar to the, the mirror, on, mirror neuron system, but more having to do with emotionally relevant brain regions um, like the insula, which we'll, we'll get into. We'll get into all of this later, <laughs> but kind of just wanted to wet your palate for the, um, the neuroscience to come. Um, and then, uh, just one more thing. Uh, we got a little bit of activity in the chat, but uh, if anybody has any questions throughout this episode about empathy, the neuroscience of empathy, uh, theory of mind, any of that, uh, go ahead and throw that in the chat and we'll try to answer it to the best of our ability. And so, I mean, something that I that I hinted at, I think the important part here, kind of giving this overview of these these different components of it, uh, is that when we talk about empathy, just in general, in this kind of colloquial sense, the way that we use the word, uh, we oftentimes conflate a lot of these different uh, elements of it. Right? It's one thing to to kind of see 
someone crying and then kind of get that facial expression yourself and be kind of mimicking the actions. Uh, there's another thing entirely to be like, oh, they're sad because the sad thing happened to them. Uh, and I understand that. I understand, you know, why they're doing what they're doing and uh, why they're in that state. Uh, and then there's this other side completely to then kind of bringing yourself into that state, actually like uh, evoking those emotions in yourself. Uh, and this really harkens back to a lot of the stuff that we've talked about visualization. Uh, this is, I think, one of the coolest things that we'll talk about in terms of like how it is that we're actually turning on these emotions in ourselves. Uh, because we didn't experience this sad event that's making this person cry, but somehow we're able to turn on all of this physiology, right? This isn't cognitive. This is us turning on things that that make our, our body kind of tense up, that make our eyes well up and make every kind of fiber of our being different. Uh, and it seems to be something that is like top down, that is us kind of recognizing this thing and then kind of reinstantiating it in ourselves. Uh, but I think the, the important part is like, as we, we're going to get into each of these ones individually, uh, and you'll see that it started with kind of the mirror neurons. And that's why we're going to start with like action empathy and these things. Cause, uh, a lot of researchers thought that like, oh, we have this system that allows us to mirror things that explains everything in terms of empathy. Uh, but that's probably not the case. And that's what we'll kind of get into. And we'll see that as we've worked out these different components, we actually see that there are very different brain systems involved in each. Uh, and there's ways to control this. There's ways to, to mediate one versus the other. There's pathologies that relate to being really high on one and really low on another. Uh, and so we'll get into kind of all of that stuff now. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, we've talked a little bit about um, the mirror neuron system, uh, I think in our episode on movement, maybe. <laughs> yeah, uh, <I> think so. <laughs> yeah, but uh, also um, I... If, if anybody thinks uh, we're, we're not skeptical enough, uh, with the, I have an interview with the neuroscientist Gregory Hickok, who wrote the book, The Myth of Mirror Neurons, which is um, not as strong as it sounds, but a, 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 a solid critique of uh, mirror neuron, uh, the kind of most wild interpretations of mirror neuron theory. Um, so he has a really sober analysis of that and explains a lot of it in that interview. So um if we go a little off the rails, maybe go check out that episode and <laughs> <laughs> straighten us out. So do you want to maybe uh, get into kind of what the mirror neuron system is or like how we discovered it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was discovered originally. Uh, I'm forgetting the the decade that it was discovered in, I think <laughs> the nineties, but I could be wrong there um, uh, by uh, Rizzolotti and Jacoboni, I believe, were the two mm -hmm. scientists who really discovered this. And um, they found was was basically in a nutshell, uh, they found that when they were recording activity from neurons uh, in a monkey's brain, in a macaque monkey's brain, uh, while the monkey was, uh, I believe it was first when they were, when it, it itself was grasping something. And uh, they showed, okay, these neurons activate when this monkey is grasping something. And then uh, actually by accident, they had the, uh, the equipment hooked up to the monkey and the experimenter reached in and grabbed something from in front of the monkey where he could see it. And it 
activated those same neurons or a subpopulation of those neurons. And they thought that was really interesting. Why was this one population of neurons not, or why was it activating both in the action and the observation of action? And so that was kind of the original discovery of, okay, there's this system that seems to be involved in representing an action uh, that that the the self is is doing, mm -hmm. and it actually uh, stimulating those neurons seems to to make the the monkey do that action. Uh, so it actually has some kind of causal uh, interaction with with the the motor movement. But then it also uh, is activated when it's just watching the experimenter do the same kind of grasping motion. And it's this this story has gotten like so much attention. I've, I've heard it like told so many different ways too. That like the experimenters were eating gelato and that's what <laughs> what did it oh. or whatever it was. But uh, it's I, you you really have to to think about how incredible this this really was and especially at the time this was a landmark finding this was like this this explains everything there was like this explosion of research in this area in europe uh because of this discovery um that's why a lot of the researchers in the europe area still study like empathy um and have tried to try to link these things together but it was this idea that we have these systems in our brain and they were just recording from motor cortex right so they found in motor cortex, they were trying, that lab itself was trying to understand how the, the, the monkeys performed like grasping motions, how they picked things up and all of these things. So they were specifically looking at the regions of the brain that were for these types of motions of like bringing something to the mouth and eating. Uh, and the fact that when they weren't doing anything at all, that entire sequence of neurons was firing when they were watching other people do it was this really interesting kind of foray into how it is that we as kind of higher order mammals are probably learning um, that we are able to witness other people do things. And that allows us to rehearse those types of activities in our own mind so that when we actually do them or we can see, oh, okay, well, they use their hand to pick up that tool in a specific way and to use it. Now I have all of those motor commands in my head and I just put that whole string of events together without having to do it at all. And now I, as a completely independent monkey, can go and now mimic that entire activity of picking up that tool, of crushing the nut, of whatever it may be. And now you have this, instead of the entire species relying on trial and error for, for learning, right, for progressing as a species, you now have this completely new kind of facility of, I, I don't have to do anything myself. I don't have to try and, and fail. I can just watch other people and I can just mimic what they do. Yeah. And it's, it's a fascinating finding, but as, uh, as Hickok, that guy I mentioned earlier, uh, is quick to point out, there was not really any at the time, uh, direct evidence that humans had a similar system in their brains. So this was exclusively found in monkeys. And uh, so some of the, the uh, like kerfuffle the, the, um, <laughs> around this whole area was because it seemed that some of these researchers were getting a little bit overexcited and maybe overinterpreting and extrapolating the data to humans. But now it seems that there, there is some evidence that, that humans have a similar system, which isn't all that surprising. Um, I think the real, the real debate is around the significance of these specific neurons in our actual 
understanding of another person's actions, but they seem to have something important to do with it. And it's, uh, you know, I heard uh, there was a talk by Christian Kaisers that he was actually one of the grad students in the Rizzolati lab when all of this happened. And he's gone on to kind of study empathy uh, on his own. I think he's in the Netherlands. Uh, and he has, he, he did a bunch of work with, with humans to try to link these mirror neuron systems. Uh, but then has also kind of gone back to, to working with, with animals again to try to find some causal link between all of these things. But he had this great explanation of, of how it is, how it's possible that these things are are getting linked in the brain, and how the mirror neuron system is probably becoming active in the first place. And he gave this example of this a child, right? When a child is grasping something for like the first time, they are like intimately looking at their hand while they're doing it, right? They are watching everything that they're doing. They're grasping it. They're making sure that their hand works that way as they do it. Uh, and so there's this link between me watching myself grasp and me actually doing the grasping motion because the grasping motion is premotor cortex. That's something that, that is happening between my hand and having to grab this thing. But now I have this visual representation of it as well. And I see that like, this is a hand, it is grabbing something, but now I can, as kind of a higher order mammal, I can say, well, my hand isn't much different than your hand. And if I already have this connection between the visual cortex and this grasping motion, now I can connect that to anyone's hand that's doing something like that. Uh, and what's really cool about kind of our brains uh, as kind of higher order mammals is that we have this top-down visualization control of being able to reinstantiate these types of things, turn on this whole sequence of perceptions to rehearse it. We have a whole like episode on visualization and rehearsal and things like that. Um, but once you've seen it and linked it, now you can like do this thing over and over. Um, the problem though, is that so much of this was linked to action, right? And as we've moved forward in the empathy literature, that's why there's this whole category when you're talking about empathy as of action empathy, that it seems that this system is really important for mimicking the actions of others, for, for really kind of understanding what someone's doing, predicting what they're gonna do next based on the sequence of actions they did before, right? And a lot of this is very automatic. Like we, within 24 to 48 hours of being born, we are mimicking facial expressions of the people that were like, put in contact with, with the caregivers that we have. So this is a very innate system. Yeah. And it, it makes sense to that in, in social mammals like humans and monkeys, that there would be this kind of automatic uh, mimicking or action understanding program uh, in the brain. And it's, so that is super interesting. And I think uh, we could go on about motor uh, or mirror neurons and the, the motor system and, and for a while. But I think, you know, to, to get maybe deeper into empathy uh, as people typically think of it, even though this is important, as, as Taylor's just mentioning, mimicking facial expressions, there's that seems to be like kind of a, a low level emotional aspect of this uh, motor uh motor or action empathy system. Um, but maybe we should move on to, to cognitive empathy and kind of talk about what we're, we mean there with theory of mind and how that works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so you have this, this one 
component of being able to predict what someone's going to do based on their actions, right? Um, if I see that someone takes the the same path to to the, the watering hole every day, then I can predict just based on what they've done, just based on their behavior, where they're going to go the next day, what they're going to do the next day, right? And a lot of that is being able to kind of track and mimic these action sequences that people are doing. Uh, but that doesn't explain how we can understand intent, how we can understand why someone is choosing to do that thing. What's actually going on in their mind? What kind of emotions are causing them to want to wake up early today and to go early or to do this or whatever it is? Um, and so that really prompted this, this whole new set of uh, what, what has been deemed theory of mind, which is separate than just predicting something based on action, right? Based on behavior, but actually having a model or an understanding in our brain that someone has an internal thought process, that there's reasons why they're doing the things that they do. And so that's why it's called theory of mind, because I have a theory that that person has a mind of their own. That it's different than my perspective. It's different than what I would do. And there are the same kind of things that are driving me that are probably driving them. Yeah. And to just drive home that point of like the difference between understanding uh, or being able to predict someone's actions based on their past behavior versus um, understanding that those um, actions are driven by thoughts and feelings in their, in their mind is, you know, you could see a, uh, uh, the sunrise every day and predict, well, the sun's going to rise every single day uh, because that's just how it happened for my entire life. And I don't have to really imbue the sun with any kind of motive or a mind or anything like that. But it's very different for people and even for, for animals. If you see someone, um, you know, like Taylor said, walking the same route to the watering hole every day, you just kind of naturally at, well, at a certain point in development, we, we naturally begin to imbue people with minds and think, okay, he's going to the watering hole every day at the same time, not because there's some kind of automaticity, he's a robot that's walking there and couldn't do otherwise, but because uh, he's, that's the time that he drinks or bathes or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> he's thirsty. He has something thirsty. driving him, right? Yeah. Uh, so... And a lot of this, uh, and, and we'll kind of get into, as we get into this, uh, a lot of this has a developmental angle to it. And uh, we'll see that as children get older, there's different components of this uh, that are kind of more advanced or less advanced. Uh, and what really got a lot of this work started was what's called the false belief task, um, which I think the researchers are very much moving away from these days because it's not the whole picture. Uh, but the whole idea, it was originally pitched as this whole like Sally and Ann thing where you have Sally puts a marble in a bucket uh, and walks away. She leaves the room and Anne is still there. And Anne goes and takes the marble out of the bucket and goes and hides it in the drawer. Uh, and so... Sally's been gone this whole time. She has no idea that Anne picked the marble up and put it somewhere else. And when Sally comes back, you ask the participant, where is Sally going to look for the marble, right? And if you have a, what at the time they kind of deemed a theory of mind, if you can understand that, that Sally's perspective is different than yours, then you should, you should assume that she's going to look where she originally put it. Because she put it in the bucket, she left, she had no idea that Anne, with all of her trickery, put it somewhere else, right? Uh, but children under the age of five often fail this. Um, and there have been reports of like people with autism that have failed this. It's not as clear cut, but, um, but they'll actually say that she's going to look in the drawer. 
uh, that she knows what I know. She doesn't have this different perspective. I saw Anne put it in the drawer. That's where Sally's going to look for it. Um, and so seeing that children didn't really have this ability really prompted this, this kind of inquiry into like, okay, is there something that's happening in terms of development that's allowing us to then start to build models and start to understand that people have their own minds and that as children, we just don't even understand that. We don't understand that people have other minds. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because it, it also, it seems to come so naturally to us. Like I was just, it just occurred to me that so many uh, ancient cultures when they're trying to explain the workings of the universe and nature uh, <laughs> resorted to a kind of theory of mind of, of like yeah. I just said about the sun, you know, we don't have to imbue the sun with thoughts and feelings and motivations yet something like that was a part of many ancient cultures, belief systems. So there's, we, we, we not only naturally imbue this to other people, but once we develop this past the age of five, right, we, we maybe even have a tendency to, to uh, imbue inanimate objects <laughs> with, with minds. So it's, it seems to be a really active system in the brain. And, uh, and yeah, so maybe we should talk about some of the neuroscience of it. Yeah, yeah. So this this false belief task was then used uh, in kind of a neuroscience context of putting people in scanners. They devised a bunch of different ways of creating like a Sally and Ann type scenario of false beliefs. Um, you think someone has a belief, but it's wrong or whatever it is. Uh, and what they found was that whenever you were having people think about the minds of others, this very particular region of the brain, the right temporal parietal junction. So it's where the temporal and the parietal lobes meet. So if you're listening to this, it's kind of up, kind of behind your ear. Uh, and uh, it's this region, it's association cortex, so it's where a lot of information is kind of coming together. Uh, but for some reason, this region is really robustly activated when we're thinking about the minds of other people. Um, and they dug into this. They said, you know, is it specifically about the minds of other people? So they had people think about kind of just attributes of people, described a person, what he was wearing, what he looked like. That didn't really activate it. Um, they described kind of false beliefs about just like pictures that weren't people. It was just like, oh, I took a picture, but that picture isn't what that place looks like anymore because there's been a storm or a fire or whatever. Uh, and that didn't do it. Um, it was specifically about thinking about intentions, thinking about emotions of other people, really trying to put yourself in the shoes of another person that was getting this, this right temporal parietal junction to really kind of light up. Yeah. And, and uh, as we'll talk about, there's kind of other, there's definitely, it's not you know, it's not just this region no. uh, that <laughs> is involved in this kind of thing, but it seems to be kind of uniquely involved. There's some other kind of socially and self-relevant regions that are involved in this process, but the right TPJ, right temporal parietal junction seems to be like uniquely important <laughs> for theory of mind. And they really started to dig it. So Rebecca Sachs is a really big name in this field. I mean, her original like grad school work is what kicked off a lot of this. Uh, she's the one now that's saying we need to move away from false beliefs because in her original studies, she showed it wasn't just false beliefs that was starting this, but it was also true beliefs. It was just thinking about kind of the intentions and uh, the 
what people were going to do be based on how they felt based on uh, why they were coming to these conclusions, like really trying to get into their thought process. Um, and what was really interesting was that she kind of shifted into trying to understand the developmental angle of this, because you have these children, four or five years old, that can't do this false belief task. And so she's like, well, is that really, does that really mean that they don't have theory of mind? Um, and when you look back, something that I mentioned earlier is that like for hours, we're already kind of mimicking the actions of others. Um, but what you see really early on, way before four and five, uh, is that babies and toddlers know that you have a different perspective than them. Like I have a, I have a toddler at home, like he's not five yet, but he still knows, like if he goes and hides something, he knows where it is and he knows that I don't know where it is, Right. And so that that kind of to me is evidence that he knows that I have a different perspective than him, right? It may not be as kind of uh, refined as him, like knowing that I have these intentions and these emotions behind my actions and things like that. Uh, but you see, like babies, when someone walks in the room uh, and they're looking for something, right? You're like playing the game, like, oh, where is it? Where is it? The baby will point, right? And so that's this this other evidence that like the baby knows that you that they can see it, but you can't, right? And they direct your attention to it. They know when they're in this kind of joint attention phase when you're both looking at the same thing. Uh, and so there seems to be this kind of developmental trajectory to this kind of stuff that then kind of leads to being more about the mind over time. Yeah, and in uh, did well one aspect of that, right, is that the, the TPJ, the temporal parietal junction, um, children also have a temporal parietal junction, right, yeah. in their brain. <laughs> and uh, the difference is that it, it activates selectively to represent, uh, before age five, basically, yep. it activates re to represent um, social information in general. So that's interesting. As we get older, as we cross that threshold of age five, our brains start to, or our, at least our temporal parietal junction, more selectively uh, activates to represent or reflect um, other people's mental states. So there's this, it, and like Taylor's saying, it's it's likely individual variable, variable on the basis of individual brains, and it's also a gradual process. It's not like at age five, boom, now you have a temporal parietal <laughs> junction. No, it's it's going to be gradual. So maybe maybe uh, your son is, is just really advanced. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's uh, Rebecca Sachs has this really beautiful data that speaks to what you were just talking about, um, where she shows that like young children, the, the like Andrew was saying, the right temporal parietal junction will light up to all social information, whether it's about the mind or not. Um, and then as we start to get older into like eight, nine, that kind of area, uh, it will it's kind of a it's an intermediate between just about the mind or just about social stuff. And then by the time we're adults, it's usually just like robustly activating for stuff about the mind. Um, and what Rebecca Sachs thinks, uh, and she has this really interesting data, this like seven year study she did with sign language uh, children. You have some children learn sign, sign language from birth because they were born into a deaf family, whereas other uh, deaf children were born into a hearing family. And the hearing family actually had to spend time learning sign language before they could talk to that child. Um, and what they found was that the children that had this delayed kind of um, introduction to language developed the stuff later. And so what they think might be going on is that as we engage in conversation about 
people's minds because that's part of what we do when we're talking to our children, when we're talking to each other, we're talking about people's states, why they did the things that they did. You know, was it because they were feeling bad that they did that? Uh, was it malicious that they did that, right? We're constantly trying to infer intention. And whenever we're trying to infer intention, we're talking about someone's mind. And the more we talk about someone's mind, the more that region starts to understand that that's important. Uh, and what she thinks is happening is that there's a pruning event that happens where that region starts to prune all just kind of social information that's not about the mind out so that all that's left is stuff to really build a good model of intention, uh, trying to predict what someone's doing based on like, think about what we're doing all the time where we, we like we simulate these scenarios before we go like have a fight with someone or like we have a big talk coming up. We go through like all of these different scenarios in our head of like, well, if I say this, are they going to get upset? Um, and what if this happens? Are they going to do that? Like we're constantly trying to understand and trying to predict what someone's going to do based on our own actions. And so we have this part of our brain that's able to create these, these really intricate models of how it is that we think that they're, their emotions, their kind of beliefs and all of these things are going to come into play with how they kind of interact with the world. Yeah. And, and one, one other thing that uh, Rebecca Sachs has talked about, and I think work from her lab shown this, that um, the, it's, it's not just that the TPJ activates when we think about other people thinking and um, their minds, it's that there are particular patterns of neural activity that she and her lab have actually uh, recorded and then been able to uh, decode uh, in a way that predicts whether the person uh, was um, uh, th thinking because uh, it's, <laughs> it's someone else thinking about someone else. But um, basically the, the pattern of neural activity in the TPJ can differentiate between thinking about someone else committing uh, a knowing harm, knowing that they're committing harm or not knowing that they're committing harm. So like um, sort of blameworthy or unblameworthy harm. Yeah. So just another way of seeing that the TPJ has this really important role in our understanding of other people's minds. And that's, that's really important because it, it really highlights where MRI is now compared to where it was before. So where it was before, all of the stuff that we've been talking about is just that the, the right TPJ was active. When we were thinking about people's minds, but Andrew's getting into something that's really important and that now what we're doing is we're actually kind of peering into that region and we're saying what patterns of activity in this region may be indicative of certain types of thinking about someone's mind, right? That I, this pattern is me thinking that someone should be like held accountable for something, that they did something blameworthy. Whereas like this pattern of activity was like, oh, they did that by accident. We really shouldn't be mad at them, right? Um, and it really highlights that there could be something very intricate going on in this region that's making these types of calculations about whether or not we should interact with these people, whether or not we should maintain relationships with these people because we're trying to understand their intentions. Because if we've now come to the conclusion that they have a terrible intention, then now that kind of in informs my behavior going forward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then this this kind of brings us to emotion and why uh so understanding other people's motivations other people what they're going to do in the future is really important for our species for our ability to engage and cooperate and compete and interact with each other um and so a huge part of that of course is being able to understand other people's emotional state 
So uh, we've kind of to this point just been talking about understanding what other people are thinking um, and what they're likely to do next based on that. But uh, then there's this kind of, you know, more particular component of this, which is understanding that person's emotional state. Um, and this doesn't even bring us to affective empathy, to feeling that emotional state yet, but just that, you know, I just want to mention that that's, that's a part of this, this process. And I think that's that's really important that you brought that up, right? Because that that links us back to what what we were kind of getting to in the first place. In that there's this very particular type of empathy that is very cognitive, that we are simply trying to understand why someone feels the way that they do. And this kind of harkens back to sympathy, right? Being I can understand why you're sad. I don't know if I would be sad in the situ same situation, but I know that you're sad. I can see it, right? And that is very different than feeling it myself. And what we're showing and what we're talking about is that this work in theory of mind is kind of mapping out a lot of those cognitive components of empathy, of being able to kind of form this kind of simulated model of why someone is doing the things that they're doing. And I think this leads in really well into some of the pathology um, because there are so antisocial personality disorder, which is uh, used to be referred to as psychopathy, right? Psychopaths uh, have often been kind of talked about as not having empathy. And so it's really important to understand the nuance here because it's not that they just don't have any empathy at all. Someone who has kind of these psychopathic tendencies, antisocial type tendencies is really good at understanding the emotions of others. Um, you have like Ted Bundy was someone who would like take phone calls and would like understand these these women that were in distress, but then used that to then manipulate them. Right. I understand what you're feeling and I can use that to my own gains. But then when it came to these awful things that he did, he didn't have the affective side of empathy of actually trying to put himself inside the shoes of the suffering that was happening in front of him. And that led to these incredibly egregious things that he was able to do. And so it really highlights the importance of understanding the differences in these different components of empathy, because you can be really high in one and really low in the other, and that can have really big impact on the way that you interact with the world. Yeah. And uh, to add on to that, uh, sometimes this can sound like a really clear cut, like uh, that it's like um, those with antisocial personality disorder uh, don't have any ability uh, to have any kind of affective empathy. But I think, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but that, that Christian Kaiser's, um, <laughs> his lab or maybe his, his wife's lab, uh, they showed yeah. that um, that some, at least a subpopulation of uh, psychopaths or antisocial personality disorder havers uh, are believed, or that they can, um, if they, actively try to empathize with somebody they can't but it just doesn't come naturally so he differentiates uh kaiser's differentiates between the propensity for empathy um and the ability to empathize so that some people might be really high on both have a really high ability for empathy on command but also have a high propensity for it whereas others might might have some kind of different uh mixture of that and that People with anti-personality, anti-social personality disorder have um, uh, an ability to empathize, but a very low propensity for it. And that, I think, is, is a really interesting um, 
kind of transition that we can do into this affective side of things. Uh, and the really important thing to keep in mind as we move forward is that there is an element of cognitive control with these things. Um, and there's really interesting studies that we'll talk about as we get into this kind of affective side that really show that this is something like the actual feeling what someone's feeling is something that we can modulate cognitively. We can we can learn how to turn that down and how to turn that up um, and how to kind of be more vulnerable in these situations. Um, and so I just wanted to highlight that as we move into affective empathy, that there's there's some very clear kind of top down stuff that can happen with this stuff. Right. Yeah. And um, so with with affective empathy, uh, as we mentioned before, this is. This is really beyond just understanding what someone's feeling, but it's putting your shoes, uh, putting your, putting yourself <laughs> in the shoes of other people uh, emotionally, feeling uh, what they would be feeling, um, even like physically too, even beyond just like emotional feelings, but uh, being able to, you know, imagine what it would feel like to have a stomach ache when you see somebody else uh, in in pain like that. Um, and a lot of this does seem to have to do with pain as well as kind of emotions. Um, but uh, that brings us to the idea of emotional contagion, because this is closely linked to affective empathy. Yeah. Um, and that's this idea that that emotion spreads. Um, and this is all kinds of emotion. This is this positive emotion, negative emotion. Um, if you're in a, a group of people and you're getting riled up, you're getting excited about winning the gold or whatever it is, that that emotion, that feeling is spreading through the crowd. You're in, in a way kind of reflecting and mirroring the emotions around you. Uh, there's lots of cases where you see someone crying and it makes you well up as well. Uh, and the really kind of fascinating thing that I, I think a lot about in terms of this stuff is that it doesn't even have to be a real person, right? You can be watching just some sad movie that like is all of a sudden like you're just like in tears, like watching these people go through these things or deal with these difficult. Uh, you can be reading a book and just like really kind of feel that stuff welling up inside of you. Um, and so it's that we have this ability to understand that we can turn on these same feelings. We, we know what those feelings feel like. And so when we see these other people experiencing these things and going through them, then we can feel them too. Um, and I think an important thing as we move forward to, to really kind of grasp is that this is a continuum, that some people are very affectively empathetic uh, and other people have very low affective empathy. But most people, this is a bell curve, which means that, that most people in the population have kind of an average, not really high, not really low. You have like empaths are the really high where they see someone crying and they they just immediately will start crying themselves. They have to look away when other people are in pain because they'll feel the pain themselves, right? Whereas you have people, like we said, on the antisocial personality disorder side tend to be on the very low side where like they can't even engage that. They're like, I, nope, I don't feel it. Yeah. And if you're curious about what your, your empathy score <laughs> is, uh, you can take the empathy quotient test developed by uh, Simon Baron Cohen, who's uh, hugely influential in the study of empathy. Um, and uh, I took it and I was uh, average. So yeah, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> probably will be too. <laughs> yeah. uh, cool. So I, I think we can maybe get into uh, this idea that I was hinting at in, in terms of um, top down versus bottom up processing, right? So bottom up in terms of emotion, right? So bottom up processing would refer to the fact that like 
something terrible just happened to you, right? And you're going through this awful experience, this suffering, and it's creating this physiological response in your entire body that's welling up from the ground up, that's causing your eyes to water, that's causing your, your stomach to tighten, all of these different things. That is something that is that is rising from the bottom up to the top, right? That is not something that I turned on at the top and then like had all of this stuff happen later. Uh, and so as we kind of go through this, it's important to remember that like that's a big factor in terms of visualization. Um, and a lot of this is going to be tied into what we've talked about previously in terms of visualization, in terms of these high order parts of the brain, the parts of the brain that are at the, the top of the hierarchy in terms of information processing and everything. They have the ability to turn on all of these different circuits, right? That it's like, I want to picture an apple. Okay, now I have an apple in my head. Now I want to have this whole experience of imagining biting into that apple and tasting the sweetness, the, the crisp crack when it when I take that bite uh, and uh, the smooth outside edge of it. And you can activate, as I'm going through that description, top down, you are activating all of your experiences of having done those things, Right. And I think that's that's a really important thing to remember and to keep in mind in that in especially when we get into like the types of people that we empathize with are usually people that have been through similar things that it's hard to visualize something. It's hard to create an experience in yourself that you haven't already experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, it's not just like the imagination. I think as Taylor was saying, I just want to drive home that it's these top-down brain, these, these uh, you know, brain regions, especially when we're talking about uh, emotion, uh, being like the prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate um, and the insula, able to uh, exert a top-down influence on brain regions that are more involved in like the sympathetic, the, uh, God, such a bad word for right now, but the, uh, the <laughs> physiological response of your body, yeah. uh, where you can think about the, one of my favorites, thinking about, uh, standing on the edge of the grand Canyon, looking down below, uh, for me, like I can, I can feel like my hands start to sweat. And, uh, that, yeah. that's like a, a physiological response that was triggered by just my you know memory and imagination of standing on the, um, at the Grand Canyon. And so there's, there were these two theories in uh, kind of the social neuroscience world uh, that were trying to get at trying to explain these kind of mirroring things that were happening, how we're understanding other people. Uh, and one of them was was called mental state attribution theory. And that was really that like, we're, when we're trying to understand other people and trying to take on their emotions and everything, we're creating these elaborate models of who they are and where they came from and all of the experiences that we've had with them. Um, and that could be true in terms of like the cognitive empathy that we've talked about. But there's this other theory called simulation theory that is really more about kind of using ourself as a template to understand other people. Um, and what you tend to see is that, uh, so, I mean, this, this happened in the kind of research that I'm really involved in. Uh, there's a region that's often called like the self region. Um, I put that in air quotes because it's not the self. Uh, we don't really know what's being processed there, but it lights up really robustly when we think about ourselves. Uh, and it's this ventral portion of the medial prefrontal cortex. So kind of in the middle of the, the frontal lobe, uh, kind of down near the bottom, near your eyes. Uh, and when we're thinking about other people, we tend to use this portion that's that's up higher, this dorsal portion of that same part. 
But they started to manipulate this and they started to find that when we thought about people that were similar to us, that were close to us, that were part of like our clan that we knew that that region that usually processed other people that was up higher, all of that activity started to kind of drift down into self land. Uh, and it was this idea that when people are similar to us, when they're, when they're people that we know, that we like, that we uh, have some type of a relationship with, that we may be using ourself as a template to understand them. Because if they're like us, if they like the things that we like, if they've been through the same experiences that we've been through, then I can understand them based on my own experiences. But that this other region that's maybe up higher, maybe instead more of that modeling thing, more of like the stereotypes. I don't know you, so I'm just going to predict what you're going to do based on what people like that do, right? Um, and it gets into this idea. So if, if we are simulating your experience, that provides this really interesting framework for understanding how we're turning on these emotions, right? And that, that ventral medial prefrontal cortex area, that self area or whatever it is, has really deep connections to these emotional parts of the brain that we've been talking about in terms of being able to top down, ignite these emotions. And think about who it is that you have these very vulnerable moments with these like very empathetic moments with of like getting down and like, like, I feel what you're feeling. Like I'm here for you. Like I'm crying with you as you cry on my shoulder. Those are usually people in our in-group, usually people that are similar to us that have been through similar experiences. And we're able, I think, to, to do that because of the fact that we are using ourselves to, to do a lot of this. And it's interesting to note that that same brain region, the VMPFC um, is involved in the process of like evaluation of, of seeing yeah. what our, um, or, uh, in, in choosing between options, this region, uh, lights up and, and can predict its activation can predict the option we'll choose, but it's also involved in, um, in valuation more broadly. And so maybe there's something that's going on where as, as that activity um, drifts from the dorsal to the ventral region of the medial prefrontal cortex, it's maybe also reflecting that these people are more valuable to us. They're more, they're closer. They represent values uh, to us. Um, but anyway, that was a bit of a, a side track. <laughs> no, there. I, I like it. Uh, yeah. And sorry, go for it. No, go, go ahead. I, I was going to bring up the, the insula. It's something yeah, me too. talked a lot about you go for it. Sure. Yeah. The insula is one of my favorite brain regions. Uh, for It's uh, basically one of the things that the insula does, the, especially the anterior portion of the insular cortex, is it, um, and it's really close by the VMPFC, I should mention that. Uh, it um, is involved in mapping the sensations of our body, of the in internal milieu of our body, this, interoception, as we talked about before, it's um, kind of the sensory cortex for interoception. And it is also, it, as you might think, because it's involved in bodily feelings, it's also involved in emotional feelings and kind of the, you know, the knot in your stomach when you're stressed or the feeling of, of warmth when you're around close other people or um, just the, the sort of bodily component of emotional feelings. And uh, this region not only activates when we're experiencing our own feelings, but also when we are empathizing with the feelings of other people. Um, and I think I was first shown in studies of disgust, right? 
And I mean, the insula, like evolutionarily, was very involved in disgust in other animals. It's a it's an area of the brain that lit up when we ate disgusting food as like a signal of like, don't do that again in the future. Uh, we as humans have like now created this symbolic disgust that still activates the same region. Like when we see people do morally disgusting things, it's like, uh, but it does so much more than that. We have a whole uh, episode on interoception that's like fascinating. It gets into the insula. Uh, but everything that Andrew is talking about is is so tied into what we're we're getting at in terms of how it is that these high order regions like the, the frontal cortex regions, the default mode regions that we've talked about um, are then kind of communicating with, like the insula that has a map of all of the, the physiological feelings that we have in our body that then can communicate with these like midbrain regions to actually turn that stuff on, to feel warm, to, to feel like, like lifted up and, and, and good when we have these like amazing things that are happening to us and we're seeing amazing things happen to people around us. And uh, it's this, this whole map of how we're going from the top down to turn all of this stuff on, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. And it seems to be, uh, this hasn't, I haven't come across this in the empathy and research I, we did for this episode specifically, but the, um, generally the anterior cingulate cortex, which is a region nearby the insula in the under kind of the frontal lobe. And, um, it is, seems to be, or has been referred to as the, the limbic motor cortex. So kind of like <laughs> emotional, motor cortex in a way that it's what sort of drives these these physiological changes that then the insula represents as uh interoceptive information so it is probably also involved in this process but that's that's a little bit of speculation i i believe i haven't come across that you know and it's really interesting because what we started this whole thing at uh was that the mirror neuron system probably isn't involved in this but i uh, what what I really want to kind of put as like a caveat with a lot of this is that we really don't understand these networks, like how to define these networks. There's a network in our brain that mimics action that we call the mirror neuron system, right? But then there's this whole other system that we're talking about now that is essentially doing a very similar thing in terms of mimicking the emotions of others, right? We might not call it the mirror neuron system, but it's still just as incredible uh, that we're, we're able to kind of do this, right? Uh, and Christian Kaiser, who I talked about, who was really involved in mirror neurons in the first place, has been trying to kind of map this on to, to animals and animal studies. Uh, he did this really interesting study with, with rats, where he had one rat was the demonstrator who would always get shocked. And rats getting shocked, it's not a pleasant experience. It like makes them experience fear and exhibit fear. Then he put another rat in the cage with them. And this rat either had been shocked before in the past or not. And so the rats that hadn't been shocked ever in their life, when they saw the other one get shocked, they didn't think anything of it. They didn't exhibit any fear or anything. But the rats that had before in their life, getting back to this like simulation theory, when they saw the rat get shocked and they had experienced it before in their lives, they experienced a bunch of fear. And there was this really interesting effect that the demonstrator, the one that was actually getting shocked, when he saw the other rat get scared, he got even more scared himself. And so it shows that there's this element of, of co-regulation that we experience, that this, this whole idea of emotional contagion, a lot of it is probably linked to threat detection evolutionarily, that we need to mirror other people in order to avoid bad things happening to us. Because if we see something bad happening to someone, we don't want it happening to us. But it also gives you this really clear insight, especially me as a parent, that 
and people in helping professions and all of these kind of things that your emotional state is going to influence the person in front of you's emotional state. So if I'm really anxious, if I'm really worked up, my child is going to pick up on that. I have to regulate my own system to then bring his system down, right? And there's this huge interplay between that that is is really interesting when you get into these helping professions. Um, and I think we can maybe go a little bit longer because I think we have some more today. Because yeah. um, one of the things that we haven't brought up uh, in terms of being able to control this stuff um, is how people in helping professions actually turn this off. Yeah. And this reminds me of... Um... Uh, there's this book by this really prominent uh, Yale psychologist, Paul Bloom, called mm -hmm. Against Empathy. Um, and it's it's a provocative title, but it's <laughs> what he's basically saying is that when it comes to helping other people, when it comes to actually being compassionate, responding to the suffering of others, that having too much of this affective empathy where we're feeling what, what the other person is feeling um, that can can kind of like overpower us and make us more concerned with our own suffering because now we've kind of simulated that that other person's negative experience into our own uh, mind and body and he he says that there's evidence that this can reduce people's um, likelihood of actually acting compassionately toward other people and i think this really um comes up in like taylor said in, in helping professions nursing, um, all kinds of uh, therapists and doctors have to deal with, um, you know, what's that right balance of, of connecting with the patient or the person and just getting to work and actually solving the, the problems. There's, there's a lot of flack that doctors get for not being empathetic, right? For, for kind of being cold and distant. But when you really think about how many people they see in a day that are suffering, right? Think about taking on the suffering of all of these other people yourself, simulating all of this pain that these people are in. Think about being a therapist and, and just listening to traumatic stories that people are telling you uh, of living in this trauma with people of like feeling that their emotions as they're crying on your couch and all of these things. If you take all of that on, it's a lot to hold yourself. There's such thing as like secondary trauma of, of getting kind of this, these traumatic type symptoms from actually kind of simulating and experiencing what other people are experiencing. And they've done these fascinating research experiments where they put people in the scanner and they have, they have controls that, that aren't in a helping profession. Uh, and then they have these other people that are, they have acupuncturists, they have surgeons and all these people. And what they find like with acupuncturists, this is a really interesting one. If you put controls in and you show them videos of someone getting poked with needles, then this area that lights up for like for pain, empathetic pain will light up in these control people that doesn't light up in acupuncturists. Right. And so it's this, and, and they've seen this the same thing with, with like helping professions like with doctors and surgeons and things like that, that there's an element of me having to decide like what's me and what's not me. And, and really in certain situations, having to make protective decisions for myself to turn off that affective component in order to not be kind of drowned out by it. Yeah. It's the same thing when you, you uh, talk to anybody who's done surgery, um, that there's this just, you have to kind of shut off your understanding that this is a human being with a full life and that their life is in your hands. 
because it, it just can overpower that the, the cognitive abilities that you need in that moment to perform surgery correctly. Um, but yeah, so, so sorry, I got a little off track. No, 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 it's, yeah. it's good. Um, and I think uh, we can bring up just a couple more things and then, and then maybe wrap up. Uh, so we, we did bring up a pathology related to, to low affective empathy and high cognitive empathy, right? You have these antisocial personality type people that uh, can understand but not feel. Um, and what they see with autism may actually be kind of the opposite of that. Um, that people on the spectrum with autism may have a really hard time cognitively understanding what other people are, are, are feeling and, and like really kind of understanding the social components that, that play into that. Uh, but they have found evidence that they can experience the affective side. Um, and so it's, it's one, of these, one of these kind of cautionary tales of really kind of understanding what you mean when you're throwing the word empathy around when you're saying that someone doesn't have empathy versus has empathy, that there's a lot of nuance to this. Um, and certain elements can result in really egregious behavior, really violent behavior. Um, and other ones, like people on the autism spectrum disorder, often are not out committing crimes because they have low empathy, right? They're often very nice, kind of warm people. Uh, and so it's, it's one of those things that it's there's very clear differences in in where you are on one and not on the other, uh, but that all of it is is learnable to a certain extent. We come into this world with genetic predispositions for a lot of this stuff, but life experience has has a big part to play. A lot of the people that end up with antisocial personality disorder came from really difficult childhoods, and so you have to you have to understand that that may have then made it so that they turned off the affective side because they were suffering so much that now they just lean into the cognitive side. Yeah, yeah, and it, it may not be that in, in all cases. Uh, I just watched the uh, movie about Jeffrey Dahmer and it seemed like he had a really good childhood and it just nonetheless became a total crazy serial killer. But um, regardless, uh, it's uh, probably multiple reasons for becoming a, a murderous serial killer other than just empathy as well. But anyway, I'm getting off topic again, uh, because you're talking about how we can change this over time, how we can learn to be more empathic. Um, and uh, I think the first step, uh, this was pointed out um, in a lecture by um, Jamil Zaki, Jamil Zaki, Jamil yeah. Zaki uh, that he he did this uh, collaborative work with the Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck, who we've mentioned before because she um, came up with this theory called um, uh, or the growth, growth mindset. Yeah, she discovered yeah. this idea of the growth mindset, which is that when you believe that you can improve and change uh, on pretty much any metric, uh, that belief itself is a prerequisite or at least um, a it facilitates that change. And this is true with empathy as well as they've, they've shown. So the first step is believing that uh, you can become more empathic if, if that's your goal. But I think, you know, the thing, the real the reality is like, we're not usually concerned with ourselves being more empathic, but with, with other people and other people in specific circumstances. So maybe we should talk a little bit about that before we close out. 
Um, yeah, because we, as I mentioned at the very beginning, um, I think that we're now living in a very different world than we did in the past as a species, where all of this stuff evolved for us to connect with one another. And I think that anyone can relate to those moments of vulnerability, those moments where you really are kind of in it with someone and they're they're spilling their heart out to you they are being really emotional uh those are really kind of important impactful moments that create really strong bonds between us as well that connect us as human beings um and we now live in a world that's it's very devoid of a lot of those moments um that we're we're incredibly isolated uh we have so many people now uh, versus the past that are living in cities that are now in these, these very kind of urbanized environments that they're surrounded by people. Like think about New York City, you're walking down the street and there's just like hundreds of people around you, but you're alone, that you're not actually connected to these people around you. Um, and there's, there's a huge component here in terms of understanding that this is learnable, uh, understanding that it's disappearing because of these elements, because of technology, because of most of our interactions, not having the emotional component, not having the face that we can see, not having the emotion that we can see, that we can then kind of put ourselves in and simulate and feel uh, that once someone becomes an outgroup member, once we identify them as a them or as a this or as a that, uh, that we kind of cut them off from a lot of this stuff. Um, and so really kind of challenging ourselves to, to understand the environment that we're in to, to recognize the moments that we can have empathy uh, and recognize that vulnerability is a good thing, that we live in a, a culture that uh, very much demonizes a lot of the feeling and expressing emotions, which I think is changing, but uh, that that's really what creates meaningful connection with people um, is, is really feeling with other people and understanding the suffering of other people and trying to alleviate that suffering. So that's my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, that and as important as that is, there's also kind of a, um, you know, utility maximization idea to empathy as well, where like is socially, if, if you can't predict the thoughts and actions and emotions of other people, um, you're going to be less able to navigate the social environment. There's probably a balance with that where like you're feeling too much of what other people are feeling all the time. It's probably harder to you know, make tough decisions and whatnot, but the ability to, to understand and to kind of map their experience onto your own and, and feel what that would feel like. That's yeah. a part of being able to be, you know, a, um, a productive member of society in many ways, because, you know, you go into a job interview you you have to be able to understand like what that person's desires and needs are and wants and to be able to kind of uh, interact with them in a in a um, in a productive way. So that not, I just got to say, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that that resonates so much with me as a parent, uh, because I am so much more interested in teaching my son social emotional skills than I am teaching him the ABCs or flashcards <laughs> with math. Like he'll learn that. He He's gonna have the ability to learn that. But right now I want him to understand what emotions are. I want him to understand how to identify them in himself so that he can identify them in other people so that he can empathize with other people. Uh, I think that it is something that is that needs to be more of a focus in our world today. And that's that's a great point that the, the understanding of your own emotions, your own experience and like that 
metacognition and, and mindfulness to your own experience, that's also an important prerequisite to, to having strong uh, powers of empathy. Um, but we've, we've gone over what we usually do, but uh, this has been a really fun episode. Uh, thanks everybody in the chat. I saw this question earlier from uh, Mikola, I believe, uh, says the interesting question is, how does the so-called mimic octopus know how to mimic the behavior and the appearance of other predators? How does the process of mimicking work in the octopus brain? I wish I, I could tell you, but that is a really fascinating animal. I actually like looked it up while we were talking. And uh, just this from Wikipedia, uh, mimic octopuses have been observed mimicking numerous different species of animals, some animals being mimicked more than others. So it's pretty, that, I mean, it's pretty amazing. It says like when it mimics a sea snake, it hides six of its arms. Mm -hmm. It holds the remaining two parallel to each other. So I have no idea how that works or, you know, the octopus brain is very different from the human brain. Um, but, you know, good question. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and I, I want to mirror what Andrew said, like, thank you everybody for continuing to watch. Uh, it's, it's so great to see the audience that we get with a lot of this stuff. Uh, and I, I think I can't speak for Andrew, but I love, doing these shows and having an excuse to look into all this really cool stuff and to learn and to, to kind of bring it to all of you. So I hope that it's giving you all some insight into your own mind and allowing you to kind of make uh, good decisions in your life around all of this stuff and to kind of understand your, your own position. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll just throw up this QR code one more time before we head out. Uh, so you can scan this to go to patreon.com slash the social brain, decide if you want to support us for as little as a dollar a month. Um, another way to support us is check out our merch stores beneath our channel. Um, you can get cool social brain t-shirts, mugs, um, bags, a lot of cool stuff there. Um, and then also just liking and subscribing to our channels is a great way to support us, to help spread the word. Um, you know, keep get, bring more empathy to society through the social brain. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. See you next time.